It's been a good morning already, hasn't it? I really like this church. Oh, thanks, Steve. Well, we are, are finishing up with 1 John today, so turn to 1 John chapter 5. And uh, for those of you who like to, to study ahead and kind of know where, where we're going, uh, next week we're going to begin a series on the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And those psalms were written as songs that is, the Israelites would sing as they journeyed from their homes to the city of Jerusalem for the various festivals throughout the year. And so uh, for the next uh, eight weeks or so, we're going to be looking at the Psalms of Ascent from uh, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And then this fall, uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And I am really excited about that. I've been reading it for uh, the last month or so and studying it. I just really feel like God's going to have some good things for us through the book of Ecclesiastes. So Psalm 120 through 134 and the book of Ecclesiastes, if you want to start reading that every once in a while to begin to, to get it into your own heart, uh, that, would be, that would be great. But today is 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. Would you stand with me as we read this scripture today? John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Please be seated. John began this letter, looked at a couple months ago, with some good news that he had to share. And this was John's news, that you can know God. God has made it possible for you to know him. In the opening lines of his letter, John says that God can be known. He has made himself known. Now, John was, was probably Jesus' closest friend here in his life on earth. If you know the gospel stories, you know that, that Jesus from time to time had at times hundreds of people who were kind of following him around. At uh, one time, he had 70 people that, he, that were following him that he sent into towns to go and to do some work. 
We also know that there was a, a closer circle around him of the 12, uh, the 12 disciples. And then we know that there was also even a closer circle than that of, of three that he would often take and to do ministry alone with them. And then there was this one named John who's called the disciple who Jesus loved. John was Jesus's best friend. John stayed the closest to him on the night of his betrayal and then all the way to his crucifixion when John was there at the foot of the cross as he watched Jesus suffer and die and Jesus looked at John and Mary was there, his mother was there as well and he said, John, here's your mother and Mary, my mother, here is your son, John. John knew Jesus well, maybe better than anyone else and John begins this letter by saying, I have heard and I have seen and I have touched the eternal life that was made flesh in Jesus. I saw him do the things that he did. I felt his hands touch my feet when he washed them on the night that he was betrayed. I watched him hang on the cross. I watched them pierce his side with a spear and then after that I saw him die. But later I saw him alive. I, I touched the scars on his hands. I ate with him. He fixed breakfast for me and some of my friends one morning. John is saying, I am telling you about someone that I have experienced with my own senses. I'm not telling you something that I, that I gleaned through philosophy or through studying or through rationally thinking about it or through some mystical experience. I am not passing on that kind of message to you. I am passing on to you a message about a person that I know, that I have touched and heard and seen. I'm a simple man. I don't know all about that philosophy stuff. But I know that I touched and experienced the eternal life from God in this man named Jesus. John's news is that the eternal, uncreated, unknowable God made himself knowable. John says, you can know God. That's good news. And so throughout this letter, John has been telling us about the things that we can know about God and about how we can be in fellowship or relationship with him and what that relationship means and how we work it out in our lives. Uh, when I was in college down at the University of Southern Indiana in Evansville, uh, my, one of my majors was interpersonal and organizational communications. It's kind of a mouthful. Uh, but in that major, I had to take quite a lot of speech classes. And one of my speech teachers would often say that whenever you give a speech, you tell your audience what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them what you want to tell them, and then you told them what you told them. And that's a little bit about what John does here at the end of his letter. He tells us what he's already told us. He gives a short summary of his entire letter in these nine verses. And in these last nine verses, he gives these five points, these five times where he says, we know. We know that. 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 And all five of these things are things that we can know about our relationship 
with God. And those five things are listed there in your bulletin. The first thing that John tells us about those who believe in Jesus is that we can know that we have eternal life. And John gives us his purpose statement here. He says, the whole reason that I've written this letter is so that you can know that you have eternal life. It's interesting that John also in his gospel, in the gospel of John, he actually gives a purpose statement towards the end of that book as well. He says at the end of that book that I've written these things about Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him that you may have life in his name. Making sure that people know Jesus and know the eternal life that is found in him is John's greatest passion. It's why he wrote the gospel. It's why he wrote this letter. If you remember from chapter 1, he says that telling people about Jesus and telling about the eternal life that's available through him makes his joy complete. When he tells it, it makes him filled up with joy. John loves telling people about who Jesus is and that they can have eternal life through him. So let's talk a little bit about eternal life. What is eternal life? There's two things this morning that I want to say to you about eternal life. The first thing is that if you believe in Jesus, it means that you're going to live forever. You are going to live forever. Forever. Will you join with me in singing the last verse of Amazing Grace? When we've been any less days than when we started. You are going to live forever. And the forever life that you're going to live is a forever life without sin, without evil. A forever life that is with no mourning and no crying and no pain, Revelation 21 says. You are going to live forever. So just let that sink in for a moment. You are going to live forever. I think that much of the sin that we commit in our life is because we forget that we're going to live forever. So much of our sinning in this life is due to the fact that we are afraid that we're going to miss out on some pleasure. And so we grasp for the things that aren't ours. We seek out forbidden pleasures. We steal from other people. We desire things that don't belong to us. We are jealous of what other people have. We are fearful of losing our stuff or losing our life. And so we spend money and time and energy protecting our life and protecting our stuff because we're afraid we're going to lose it. Much of our sinning is because we are afraid that in this short life under the sun, 
that we're going to miss out on something. Jim Elliott, a young missionary who was martyred for his faith in South America, has this famous quote. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So many of our sinful actions have to do with gaining things or keeping things that we're going to lose anyway. But we're going to live forever. Seek to give away everything that you're going to lose in order to gain what can never be taken away from you. Friends, as believers in Jesus, we are going to live forever, and there is no pleasure that we can have now that we will not experience with an even greater and more perfect intensity when we are in the presence of God without any barrier of sin. John wants you to know that you are going to live forever. You don't have to be afraid of losing your life because you can't lose it. You don't have to be afraid of losing out on some pleasure because eternal pleasure is ahead of you. You don't have to be jealous of other people's stuff because there's treasure in heaven waiting for you. How would your life be different today if you knew, really, really knew, that you are going to live forever? So, living forever is usually what we think about when we think about having eternal life. But our brother Steve mentioned last week that just living forever and ever is not the only thing that the Bible means when it talks about eternal life. Because eternal life in the Bible is not only about a quantity of life, but also about a quality of life. When the Bible talks about receiving eternal life, it's not only referring to this great fact that we're going to live forever, but it's also about a quality of life. It's about a life of knowing God. John 17, verse 3 says this. Jesus is praying for his followers, and he says this, I pray that you would have eternal life. And Jesus says, and this is eternal life, to know the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one he sent. Eternal life is not only about quantity, although it is about that, that we're going to live forever. It's also about quality, about a life of knowing God. Because the greatest pleasure of the life that you are going to enjoy forever is seeing God. It's being with him, the one who made you and who created you and who loves you with the love that you and I cannot fathom in this life. You are going to see that one face to face. And this thing that we call eternal life, it's something that we participate in right now. It's not something that is only waiting for us. It's something we have already received something we already possess. Right now, you are invited to know God, to experience his life in your life right now. And so eternal life, as you think about that, remember that eternal life is a life that you are going to live forever and ever. It's a life, a quality of life, where we know God and experience God. And remember that it's something you experience now. As Dallas Willard says, uh, one of my favorite teachers, he says, the gospel of Jesus is not so much about us going to heaven when we die, but about getting heaven into us before we die. 
And I think that is so true about getting heaven into us before we die. Eternal life is John's favorite topic. He wants everyone to know where to find it, to know that they have it, and that they can live it out now. So that's the first thing that John says that we can know, that we can know right now that we have eternal life. The second thing that we can know is that God hears us. God hears us. Verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. What a great thing for John to tell us. John is a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. He wants people to know that God is there, that God hears them when he prays, and that whenever you ask for anything that is in his will, that God will hear and he will respond, and that you will receive anything that you ask for that's in his will. Because we can't receive everything that we ask for. It would destroy us, right? We don't know what to ask for. My children don't know what to ask for. If I gave them everything they asked for, it would not be good for them. And so we ask and we receive anything that is in his will. And so the longer that we live in this relationship with God, the better we will know him, the better we will know his purposes, and the better we will know how to pray. And John then gives an example in verse 16 of how to pray according to the will of God. He says this, so know that God hears you. And then he says kind of in verse 16, for example, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray about that, and God will give him life. When we pray for other people, he hears us, and he responds. God has given us eternal life with him. He has invited you into fellowship with him. He hears your prayers, not so that you can get everything that you want, but so that you can join with him in his mission to bring other people into this eternal life. One of the things that John has told us throughout this letter is that you and I can enjoy fellowship with God, and that's what John is getting at here. He's saying that God hears you and that he, you have fellowship with him. And remember, fellowship, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It's that, it's that word that we only use in church, but it's, it's such a good word. It comes from the Greek word koinonia, which describes more than just, uh, more than just hanging out with friends. It, it's, it's, it's friendship for sure, but it's also partnership in some kind of mission. Fellowship, koinonia, is friendship and partnership. It's about sharing a common goal, sharing a mission together. Remember, I talked about how Tolkien got at this in The Lord of the Rings. I promise I won't talk about it for very long this time. The Fellowship of the Ring is what that first book was called. The Fellowship of the Ring was nine companions going together on a quest to save the world against evil. That's fellowship. And it's such a good picture of the church and of the fellowship that we share with God and with one another. We are a diverse group of people that God has brought together, and he's called us to go and with Christ to overcome the evil that's in the world. He has given you life in him, and he offers you fellowship with him. John tells us that when we pray that God hears us, the people in your life who you know who are walking away from God— People who are walking in sin, you have a responsibility and a calling to pray for them, to ask that God would deliver them from that life of death 
and to give them life. Verse, the second half of 16 in verse 17. John says, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death, and there is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. I have no idea what this means. No idea. I know a lot of the possibilities of what it might mean. I've thought about it myself. I've read through the commentaries, but none of the explanations are very satisfying. I don't know what this means. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named uh, Dr. Gerald Borchert, and he was an older man. And uh, he had been studying the New Testament. He was a New Testament professor, had been studying the scriptures for decades and decades and decades. There may have been a dozen people in the world who knew as much about the New Testament as he did. And I remember he was teaching on the book of 1 Timothy. And he was getting to the end of that book where Paul says this really strange thing, where he says that women will be saved through childbearing. And Dr. Borchert, this man who has studied the scriptures for 50, 60 years, he stopped and he took off his glasses and he said, I have no idea what this means. And as a first year seminary student who was there for the purpose to know what the Bible means, who really desired to master the Bible, Dr. Borchard's ability to say that set me free. His willingness to say, I don't know, set me free. The goal is not for me to master the Bible, but to allow the Bible to master me. And this morning, we are talking about some things that we can know. John says, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. But sometimes we bump up against verses like this. And I think there's a lesson here for us in this. We bump up against things in the Bible that we just don't get. We don't understand, and I just want to say to you this morning that that's okay. That it's even good to admit that you just don't know. We can't know everything. Ecclesiastes is going to teach us that, and there's freedom in that. What's that? We'll have forever to figure it out. That's great, Dan. That was perfect. Verses 18 and 19, John tells us the third and fourth thing that we can know. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So these third and fourth things go together. John tells us that we can know that we are a child of God and that we can know that being a child of God means that we are free from sin. Being born of God means that you are free from sin. Being born again is not only about a mountaintop experience that we had at some point in the past, but a daily life of being free from sin. 
We talked a few weeks ago about how as children we do tend to look and act like our earthly parents for better or for worse. And for some of us, that is really scary. And a few weeks ago, I told you about how I find myself often telling my dad's bad jokes. But for some of you, and this week as I was preparing this sermon, I I really felt like God was saying that there are people who need to hear this. For some of you, becoming like your parents is a real fear. It's much more serious than telling a few bad jokes. Some of you had really, really bad parents, and they didn't care about you, they abused you, they neglected you. And I want to say to you this morning that you, if you have faith in Christ, that you have been born again of God. In Christ, you have been given a new father. And the destiny of your character, who you are, is not bound up in your earthly father, but in your heavenly one. The destiny of your character, who you are, is not bound up in your earthly father. It's bound up in the character of your heavenly one. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. I heard this in a sermon a couple of months ago, and I've been waiting for a time to share it. I think it's a really amazing point from Matthew's genealogy. In Matthew's genealogy, there's uh, a few... These verses talk about who Jesus' descendants were, who the earthly descendants of Jesus were. And in verses 9 through 11, there's this really unique thing, reality, truth, in the history of Jesus' own descendants. Starting in verse 9, it says that Uzziah, who was a good king, was the father of Jotham, who was also a good king. And that Jotham, who was a good king, was the father of Ahaz, who was a bad king. And that Ahaz, who was a bad king, was the father of Hezekiah, who was a good king. And that Hezekiah, who was a good king, was the father of Manasseh, who was a bad king. And that Manasseh, who was a bad king, was the father of Ammon, who was a bad king. And Ammon, who was a bad king, was the father of Josiah, who was a good king. So in this order here, in this genealogy, we have Uzziah, good father, good son, Jotham. Good father, Jotham, bad son, Ahaz. Bad father, Ahaz, good son, Hezekiah. Good son, Hezekiah, bad son, Manasseh. Bad son, Manasseh, bad son, Ammon. Bad son, Ammon, good son, Josiah. Every possible combination is there. What's the point? Your destiny, the destiny of your character, is not bound up in your earthly father, but in your heavenly one. Maybe you think, I came from this terrible home, in this terrible place, with terrible parents. That's what I am bound to be to, and that is a lie. That does not have to be the case for you. 
And the same is true in reverse. Maybe you came from great parents, parents who loved the Lord, who taught you about who the Lord was. That doesn't guarantee that you're going to grow up honoring the Lord. You can squander that opportunity that you've been given and turn your back on God. Earlier in this letter, John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. He came so that sin in your life does not have to have mastery over you anymore. You can have victory over it. You are a child of God, and that means that you are set free from sin. You're not stuck in sin. You don't have to stay there. Jesus came to set you free from that cycle of sin that all of us have experienced. This is the work of the devil that Jesus set you free from. This is all that the devil does. The devil tempts you to sin, you sin, and then he makes you feel guilty for it. That's all that he does. That's the only trick in his bag, is to tempt you to sin, that when you sin, you then feel guilty for it. That's all he does. And Jesus has come to destroy that silly work. You are a child of God. You are set free from that cycle. Satan wants you to use that sin to make you feel guilty, to make you doubt your faith, to keep you in a cycle of sin and doubt and self-hatred and shame. And this morning, I want to invite you that in your struggle against sin, that you would come to know, really know, that you are a child of God and that whatever cycle of sin you are in, whether it's a generational cycle that was passed down to you from your parents or a cycle that you generated in your own self, that you have a new, perfect father to follow. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil, and he destroys that work by telling you that you are his child, and that there is nothing that you can do today or not do tomorrow that will change that. He loves you, he has welcomed you into his house, and he is not ashamed of you. The work of the devil will be destroyed in your life when you come to know deeply and truly in Christ that you are a child of God. Verse 20, John gives us the last thing in this list of things that we can know. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This goes back all the way to the very beginning. The first thing that John wanted to say to us, that he has good news, you can know God. That Jesus came in the flesh, he could be touched, he could be seen, he could be heard, so that we can know God. And then John finishes this letter with P.S. P.S. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, which seems like a really odd way to end this letter. You know, Paul always finishes his letter with greetings, you know, say hello to these people that I miss, uh, goodbye, I'll see you again soon. And John just says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Here's what some of the Old Testament prophets say about idols. They say this, that idols are made of wood and stone, and that they have eyes and they cannot see, they have ears and they cannot hear, and they have mouths and they cannot speak. And all who worship them will be like them. 
Idols are made of wood and stone. They have eyes and they cannot see, ears and they cannot hear. They have a mouth and they cannot speak. And all who worship them will become like them. Everyone who worships an idol will become like the idol, spiritually blind, deaf, and dumb. John has given us at least five precious truths today that we can know. We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God hears us, that we have fellowship with God. We can know that we are God's children and that we can be set free from sin. We can know God. Pursuing an idol, that is anything that we put in the place of God, will make you forget all of those things that you can know. Placing some created thing in God's place will make you blind and deaf and mute to the truths that John has given to us in this letter. John tells us that you can have eternal life, that God hears you, that, he has fellowship, that you have fellowship with God, that you are God's child, that you can be set free from sin, and that you can know God. If you pursue other things before God, you will become spiritually blind and deaf and mute to all of those precious truths. So, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't be distracted by any other thing that you would put in front of, in front of, in front of God. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. They will make you blind to the truths that John has given to us. As we finish this time in 1 John, I want to, to finish today with a time of silence. And I'm going to ask you some questions to prompt you to be praying to God and to, to seeking Him right now. And so if you would take a moment with me in silence, and I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions for you to ask of yourself and to ask of God. And I pray that in this time that God will use this time to show you who he is, uh, to show you what your relationship with him is like now, the truth of it, as well as what it needs to be. So let's be quiet together before the Lord. I want to ask you first, which of these five things that we can know, which one are you forgetting? We can know that we have eternal life. We can know that God hears us, that we have fellowship with him. We can know that we are God's children and that we can be and we are free from sin. And we can know God. Which of these five truths are you forgetting in your life right now? The second question, is there, is there any idol in your life? Anything, any person, any idea, anything that you are pursuing that you've put before God, have put above God, have put in the place of God in your life? Is there any idol and if so, consider how that idol is blinding you to one of these truths that John has given to us in his letter today. What is the idol in your life and how might that be blinding you to one of these truths? Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it still speaks to us today by your spirit. 
Lord, I pray that your, your word would have its way, would find its place in us, that it would be planted deeply in our hearts and would bear good fruit in our life and in your world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.